Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, and welcome to New Books and Genocide Studies, part of the New Books Network of podcasts. My name is Kelly McFall from Newman University, and I'm the host of the show. Today, I'm thrilled to have Sarah Brennis on the show. Sarah is the associate or is an associate professor of Spanish at Amherst, and she's written an excellent book on a subject I knew before I read the book absolutely nothing about: uh, the experiences and, and memories of Spanish prisoners in the concentration camp of Mauthausen. Uh, and, and those of you who have listened to the show for a while know I lived in Vienna for a year. That's by train an hour and a half or two hours from Vienna. Uh, and I never got to Mauthausen. Um, and when I was in Austria, Mauthausen wasn't a thing. That was in the 1990s. Uh, and the Austrian experience of remembering Mauthausen has some interesting parallels to the experience that Sarah is going to talk about. Um, but in Spain, the context of that experience uh, while the memory happens at the same time, the context of that experience is different. And the legacy of the Spanish Civil War, uh, the experience of the Franco government is going to be particularly important. Sarah's book is a careful, thoughtful engagement with the intersection of memory and politics. And you can learn a lot about it from that particular case study, but also it says something important about how broadly memory is done. I learned a lot from it. I'm expecting to learn even more from our discussion. So, Sarah, thank you for uh, being with us, and welcome to New Books and Genocide Studies. Thanks so much, Kelly. It's great to be here. So, as we always ask Sarah, um, ask guests to say something about themselves and, and how they became uh, interested in, in their subject. So, can you take a moment and just tell us how you got to be who you are? I'd be happy to. Um, I began studying Spanish early on. I'm not a native speaker, and I certainly don't have any uh, personal connection to Spain, but um, I spent a year studying in Madrid when I was an undergraduate at Wesleyan University, and that year was, I would absolutely say, formative. I became very interested in uh, the Spanish Civil War, in the literature and the history of that period, and certainly the Franco dictatorship. And even, you know, the the liberties that came with the end of the Franco dictatorship, which I could see very plainly in my host family and um, the the works that I was reading and studying as a student. So I went into graduate school in um, Hispanic studies, really knowing that I wanted to to study uh, the Franco dictatorship, the the post-Spanish Civil War period, and um, the opening of Spain to democracy after Franco's death, uh, it was clear that, that that was sort of my, my focus. And I was always interested in, in the history of that period, but I, I really wanted to focus on literature and film. So, um, you know, in graduate school, I started reading widely and just really by, by chance landed um, with the help of my dissertation advisor on the author Montserrat Roche, who's a, a female Catalan author, a journalist, uh, who passed away in the 90s, but she um, wrote a number of novels that treated 
what at the time was a completely novel uh, idea to me or novel occurrence, which was the fact that Spaniards had been deported to Nazi concentration camps during World War II. Um, again, I, I knew a lot um, at that point in graduate school or was learning um, about Spain and Spain's culture, Spain's history, but this piece was completely unknown to me at the time in graduate school. So I, I read more. Um, I read Montserrat Roche's sort of canonical work about this period, um, Catalans and Nazi concentration camps uh, during graduate school, and the light bulb really went off. I thought this is a fascinating time period. It brings together a lot of the things that I was already interested in, in, in terms of Spain grappling with its legacy of war and its legacy of dictatorship, but it also brought in this this new piece that has always also been of interest to me, which is which is the uh, the backdrop of World War II, um, and really this project and my interests kind of went from there. Um, I, I I am not a historian, but. Uh, it was really necessary uh, in graduate school and then in the projects that I've worked on since then, including this book, to delve into um, historical writing about Spain during World War II, the Franco dictatorship, Franco's relationship with Hitler. And um, I I sort of have started on this path uh, with my first book and now this book of looking at the history of Spain during the interwar period and during, you know, Spanish Civil War, World War II, and the Franco dictatorship, in conjunction with the novels and the films, short stories, memoirs, all kinds of texts and, and visual texts that have been produced during that period, which kind of lands me in my current interest, which is combining those those two fields, fiction and history, broadly speaking, around Spain and and its uh, its grapplings with its dictatorship and post-dictatorship years. Yeah, I, I was going to ask you about that. Many of the people I have on the show are historians or political scientists or sociologists. What what is being trained in language studies? What does that bring to your um, to the way you approach this kind of material? That's a great question. I think um, mainly that I'm. Um, that I'm really open to using other texts as source material for understanding the historical uh, story, you know, the history behind behind a particular moment. Um, so, you know, I'll give you an example that I, when I started reading more about this topic about Spaniards and Mauthausen, again, I, I read Roach's book, um, which is a, a collection of oral histories, really testimonies of Spanish Mauthausen survivors. Um, it's a, it's an amazing book. It, it, it's, it's a moment when she can capture kind of the immediate uh, sentiments of these men and women who survived Nazi concentration camps. But she doesn't bring in any of the uh, stories, any of the fiction, any of the films, any of the other cultural elements that have really contributed to how uh, people in Spain and, and outside of Spain certainly remember and understand um, the Spanish experience of Mauthausen and other concentration camps. So my feeling is that, you know, as a, as someone who specializes in cultural studies in, in language and in literature, um, I bring that extra element to the table, not just the history, which is absolutely important and really drives this, this story and this book, but also these, these different forms of cultural expression that, add to the story, that add these personal nuances to who were these survivors? How did they get to Mauthausen? What did they do after Mauthausen? Um, and, and sort of above all, um, how do people today uh, understand or look at these experiences in, in a concentration camp in Spain and outside of Spain? So, so let's turn to the book. Um, but but before we get into your specific arguments, I, I know many of the listeners to the show may not be familiar with the political context. So 
So a couple framing questions. So, so you mentioned Franco and the Spanish Civil War. Can you give, <laughs> you're going to love this question. Can you give a maybe two minute thumbnail or three minute thumbnail description about why Spain descended into civil war and how that ended? Sure. I'd be happy to. This is, this is a great question too. Um, so Spain had a republic in the 1930s, uh, essentially a, a representative form of government, the Second Republic. And in the course of the sort of political crises that unfolded during the Republic, uh, two factions emerged. And one faction, uh, the nationalists headed by Francisco Franco, rose up in a coup, a military coup against the uh, Republic which then would be called the Republicans, um, and were plunged into civil war. So the Spanish Civil War began in 1936 with this military coup supported by the Catholic Church and sort of the aristocracy in Spain versus uh, the Republicans who were still loyal to the government, the representational government, uh, uh, sort of working class, unions, uh, communists, a, a sort of uh, great amalgam of um, groups in Spain that made up the Republican Party, the Republican side of the war, that is. Um, the Spanish Civil War lasted for three years, uh, ended in 1939. Franco had a superior military strength that meant that the Republicans um, were almost constantly trying to catch up. And Franco was also supported militarily by Hitler and by Mussolini. So who sent arms, uh, you know, boats, materials, and in, including um, some of the Condor Legion, Hitler's uh, air force, bombed different cities in Spain during the Spanish Civil War, including Guernica, which is, mm -hmm. I'm sure, a place uh, people may recognize from Picasso's famous painting mm -hmm. of the bombing of that Basque town. So the Spanish Civil War ended in 1939 with Franco's uh, triumph, and that began a dictatorship uh, that would last almost 40 years. Uh, Franco was um, fascist-friendly. Uh, he formed his own political movement called the Falange. And uh, during World War II, which is the period that the, this book covers, um, Spain never entered the war officially. They were neutral and then non-belligerent. But, but Franco was in conversation and his, his government was in conversation with Hitler throughout the war. They supplied uh, war materials to Germany. Uh, there were German nationals in Spain. Uh, you know, there was a lot of a lot of give and take between Germany and Spain during the war until World War II began to turn toward the Allied forces when uh, Hitler, uh, that is, Franco, began to distance himself and uh, sort of pulled back on Spain's, Spain's uh, alliance with the unofficial alliance with the Axis. Um, the Franco dictatorship, as I said, lasted until 1975 when Franco died um, there was no there was no coup to end the Spanish uh, the Spanish dictatorship, and during that time there was a, a fairly serious uh, censorship and repression of what could be, you know, published in the press and in in taught in schools, for instance, um, including any of the details about Spaniards who were involved in World War II or deported to Nazi concentration camps. I'm not sure if that was two minutes, but that's as long as That was a great answer. Um, and the flip side then from context, as I said, I've never been to Mauthausen. I'm going to guess that many of the listeners have not. Can you say, so So it's kind of a two-part thing. Can you, can you talk a little bit about what Mauthausen was and what role it played, but, but also maybe give us some, some sense of what Mauthausen looked and looks like and, 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 and feels like? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so Mauthausen is located outside of Linz, Austria, a, a short train ride now away. Um, it's a small town on the Danube River and the Nazis established one of the first concentration camps there. Uh, it's, it was and is built almost entirely out of granite. It's got a, a, a rock quarry. Um, so it was almost self-contained and, and built by 
prisoners who began arriving in 1938 and 1939. The Spanish uh, prisoners began to arrive in 1940, and so were many of the tradesmen who, as slave labor, began to build the camp. It's not an extermination camp, although it did have a gas chamber. It is, it is a concentration camp, but it was notorious as one of the most brutal camps in the Third Reich, um, in particular because of the slave labor conditions. Um, and we can talk a bit more about the, the population makeup, but it was, it was particularly heavy on political prisoners, international political prisoners, which is in part why, why a large contingent of Spanish Republicans ended up at Mauthausen. There were Jews at Mauthausen, um, but again, they were not the largest population there. So Mauthausen, um, from its conception to today, has actually, some of the main structures have changed very little. It is now, uh, there, it is now a, a memorial site called the Mauthausen Memorial. And many of the barracks have disappeared, but many of the primary installations, including the gas chamber, are still there. They were built out of granite to last generations, and indeed they have lasted generations. So um, now Mauthausen has um, a rather extensive museum. It is run by the Austrian government, and it hosts yearly commemorations of the liberation of Mauthausen, which happened on or about May 5th, 1945. So every second, um, I believe it's every second Sunday in May, there are large contingents of international uh, visitors who come to uh, sort of pay homage to people who were who, who were killed in Mauthausen. Um, there's a procession. Uh, it really draws a huge uh, crowd, and it's it's uh, broadcast live on Austrian television as well. The procession and the ceremonies that that occur there. So it's. It's, I, I would recommend to anyone in the area a, a visit. Um, it, it's, I think, a, a fairly well-maintained um, facility uh, with a lot of information and a lot that honors the, the very diverse victims of, of Nazi violence in the camp. So you touched on this earlier, but but now let's come back to it in detail. Uh, say something about the, the, the Spanish... Um, I guess citizens is the right word, maybe, um, who ended up in Mauthausen. How many were there? Um, where did they come from? And in, in particular, you talked about them as Spanish Republicans. Why, why was that the group that ended up in Mauthausen? Right. So, so I'll backtrack a little bit to my, my yeah. historical timeline because I didn't, I didn't get into detail in this. But so at the end of the Spanish Civil War, uh, those uh, Spanish citizens, many of whom were Catalan, who and Catalonia is the region uh, in the north of Spain, right, bordering uh, France, where Barcelona, the most famous city in Catalonia, is. Mm-hmm. So many of these people who had fought for the Spanish Republic or had otherwise supported the Spanish Republic found themselves uh, really at risk by staying in Spain, a Spain now uh, now governed and dominated by Francisco Franco, who had no love lost for his vanquished opponents. So there was a great exodus in 1939 as uh, many Spanish Republicans, their families, women, children, crossed the border into France to escape lingering, you know, uh, lingering vengeance, really, in Spain. Um, they were very quickly herded onto into French internment camps along the southern beaches of France. These were inhospitable places, um, f- open to the elements, uh, fleas, dirty, uh, really not a place anyone would want to stay. They were they were um, they were uh, clearly supposed to be transit camps, but. Um, the refugees from Spain who had aligned themselves with, with the Republic didn't feel they could go back. And so many of them were forced or, co- or coerced into helping the war effort in France. They, were, uh, they worked on labor details. Some of them joined the French, French, French resistance. Others, uh, you know, were sort of volunteered, uh, in quotes, along the Maginot Line. 
And when France fell to the Nazis, um, they were, uh, for the most part, uh, deported to prisoner of war camps in Germany, Stalags. Hmm. Uh, from there, and now we're talking about a somewhat diminished group because some some Spanish citizens were able to move from the French internment camps, uh, escape to the Americas, um, or or hide in France. But for those who were captured as prisoners of war, there was a back and forth between the German government and the Franco government about what to do with these Spaniards. And I'm glad that you brought up the word citizens because they were, in fact, Spanish citizens, but they were not recognized by the Franco government because they had fought against Franco. And so in the communications between Franco and and the Germans at that point, almost by omission, the Germans asked, what should we do with these people? And Franco never responded. And by that omission, he essentially sent them on to concentration camps. There were about 10,000 Spaniards who were deported to different concentration camps, but the majority, about 7,000, were deported to Mauthausen. Um, And as I said earlier, they they arrived really at the the beginning of the war. 1940 and 1941 was when the the most uh, Spaniards arrived at Mauthausen. And many of them, those who survived, only about 60% survived. So... Uh, a little over 2,000 of those initial 7,000 Spaniards survived Mauthausen. But the ones who did survive were there until the war's end for five years in, in, the, in the Mauthausen concentration camp. And at war's end, um, most of them stayed in France. They were s- still unwelcome in Franco-Spain. They would have still faced reprisals, um, which w- would have meant violence or continued incarceration. Um, so most of those who exiled in 1939 never went back. And um, so they're political prisoners in Mauthausen. What what kind of roles do they fill in, in in that concentration camp? Right, they they're political prisoners who, during the early years, do die in great numbers uh, because of the slave labor conditions. They're working in the quarry, as I mentioned. Um, they're constructing the camp, camp. It's brutal labor. And the, as in other Nazi concentration camps, the rations are small. They're exposed to the elements. They're forced to do, you know, 12 hours of uh, exterior uh, labor. So many, many of the Spaniards who die in Mauthausen died in those first two years as the camp was being constructed. Those who manage to survive the early brutal conditions oftentimes then were able to find some placement in a privileged position in the camp. Um, And by privileged, I mean they worked inside. They were able to work in the kitchens, in the photography laboratory, in um, with the Gestapo offices. In some cases, because the Spaniards had some linguistic familiarity with German, they had spent time in France and Germany, they were able to, to speak the language, they were able to position themselves in more protected spots in the camp, um, which certainly contributed to their survival after 1941. Other Spaniards became capos. Uh, so those would be uh, people who were essentially prisoner guards. And there's, um, there's a lot of controversy over how those prisoner guards, the prisoner capos, treated their fellow citizens, their fellow Spaniards and Catalans. Some were kind, some were cruel. Um, and so this relates to sort of the, uh, one of the overarching questions of the Holocaust about perpetrators and uh, bystanders and, and victims. But Spaniards made up really a cross section of the camp between those who really suffered the worst of the conditions and were, were killed, essentially, and those who were able to position themselves and protect themselves and survive the five years in the camp. I was really, excuse me, as, as I was reading your book, I was really struck by the ability of at least some Spaniards um, in Mauthausen to record their experience and keep records of the camp while they were actually serving in these roles as functionaries. 
Um, can, can you say a little bit about how that worked and what, what we know about the camp from people who recorded it while it was active? Sure. It's, it's a fascinating part of the story. So there were two, um, two men in particular who, who ended up working in the Gestapo offices uh, named Juan de Diego and Casimir Clement. And these two men were functionaries. They, they were essentially scribes um, writing down, uh, keeping lists of prisoners as they, as they entered the camp with, uh, with identifying details. But because they spoke Catalan in particular and Spanish, and Juan de Diego had also learned German while he was in the Stalag, I believe Casimir Clement also knew German. Mm. Because of these linguistic abilities, the SS put them in charge of recording the Spaniards in the camp. And so very quickly, they became able to collect maybe even more identifying information about their countrymen and at the same time keep duplicate lists. Mm -hmm. The duplicate lists become very important at the end of the war because most of the information that we have coming out of Mauthausen and certainly out of other camps as well is lost, uh, burned, destroyed as the Allies approach at the end of the war. So the fact that these two individuals were clandestinely keeping duplicate records of their countrymen entering the camp means that Mauthausen, um, after World War II, boasted some of the best records of the victims of any of the Nazi concentration camps in the post-war period. So on the one hand, we have, we have um, Clement and De Diego. On the other hand, we have a figure who has since become almost heroic in the Spanish imagination, and that's Francesc Boix. He was um, a member of the Communist Party who managed to get a position, an assignment in the photography laboratory alongside two other Spaniards, um, Bisbal and Garcia. And these three men in the, in the photography laboratory were tasked with, uh, with you know, printing photographs. And quickly after their, after their entry, after their assignment, they started keeping duplicate photographs. So the, the photography lab would take pictures anytime uh, a, a, um, you know, a Nazi official came to visit, Himmler, Speer would come to visit the camp uh, they'd also take pictures of of bodies of people who had electrocuted themselves on the fence or had been shot, and they also documented uh, SS official official portraits. So Boish and these other two men uh, really risked uh, risked their lives in keeping duplicate copies and duplicate negatives of the photo, photo, photography that came out of the Mauthausen camp. They spirited these so, negatives yeah, away. <clears throat> they spirited the negatives away outside of the camp. They hid them with, uh, with a woman who was friendly with the French resistance and managed to keep this photographic record until the end of the war. Um, again, saving it from the, the pyres that the SS uh, were ordered to, to, to burn um, at the end of, of the war. And those photographs, some of which I, I was able to reproduce in this book, have become kind of the visual record of Mauthausen and are, are some of the most complete uh, visual records that we have of any Nazi concentration camp uh, due to you know, the privileged position of the Spaniards and their risk-taking in saving these records. Yeah, there's that group, and I, I was fascinated by them. And and then at the other end of the kind of I don't know official dumb spectrum—that's a bad way to put it—but are, are the people who who managed to draw pictures um, right. send postcards? I believe, which I found yeah, astonishing. Right. Uh, and um, and in some way, this this is what I felt found really telling is that at least a few of them you cite drew pictures for the guards, which that's right. Yeah. Astonished by. Right. So, so again, the Spaniards were able to, to get these positions of, of relative privilege. And some of them, some of them were assigned to the drafting offices, which meant that they had access to 
pencils and paper and uh, in some cases even even charcoal uh, drawing materials. They drew little cartoons uh, sort of for the barracks for their for their fellow prisoners. Uh, they also drew maps of the camp for uh, for the clandestine political organization in Mauthausen. Um, but part of why they were able to make these other drawings and keep these materials was, the, was that the SS asked them to draw pornographic drawings. Mm. And so there are some sur- survivors who write later about having really crediting their survival to having been a good enough draftsman or a good enough artist to draw uh, pornographic images for the SS who then looked the other way when they used their materials to draw other drawings, some of which were, you know, maybe to entertain or to sort of make it through um, their experience, but others were actually uh, fairly important in, in terms of the prisoners resisting some of, uh, some of the treatment in the camp and trying to help their fellow prisoners survive the, the, the camp. So, so we know that um, for prisoners of all nationalities, there's some group of them who immediately or shortly after liberation start to put pen to paper and, and record their experiences. Um, what does that look like for the Spanish prisoners? How many people um, began shortly after liberation or in the year or two after liberation to record their experiences? and? And how many of them were able to get those published? And what did that look like? So very few, very few put pen to paper and even fewer were managed to publish what, what they wrote. There, there are just a handful of Mauthausen, Spanish Mauthausen survivors who began to write after the camp for all the, all the reasons that it's difficult for any uh, concentration camp survivor to write. Um, the immediacy of these memories, these horrible memories, it's difficult to write about them. But there are a couple of um, survivors who, who quickly start to write. And one of them uh, actually will end up publishing really the first Nazi concentration camp memoir hmm. in Spain in 1946, which when I discovered it, I was astonished by how early um, this this memoir was published. It was uh, by Carl, Carlos Rodriguez de Risco, who was a Spanish uh, Spanish Republican when he entered Mauthausen and managed to return to Spain after his survival, uh, after the liberation, and began publishing these serialized articles in one of the Franco regime's official newspapers, Arriba. Uh, 29 installments that really was his memoir of his experiences in Mauthausen. And we, when you ask what it, what it looks like, this, this memoir in particular is, is really interesting because it, either in order to publish in the Franco regime newspaper or because Rodriguez de Risco had a political conversion while he was in Mauthausen, we're not sure why. But his articles, while they are historically accurate, they describe details in Mauthausen that it would take decades to to really emerge in in historical scholarship on the camp. He's also anti-Semitic. He's also an apologist for Hitler and for Franco. There are aspects of his narrative that really veer toward Holocaust denial, uh, blaming the victims for the Nazi crimes. Um, So... That's one example. And as I said, it's contentious, but, but fascinating. Another example is a man of the name of Joaquim Amat Piniella, who began writing about his experience. He was a Catalan survivor of the camp very quickly after he was liberated. And he did not return to Spain. He went to Andorra, the, the small country between Spain and France, uh, for, for a period of recuperation. Um, he began writing a novel called Kael Reich. He published some short excerpts of the novel in, in very small uh, literary magazines in, in Spain, um, things that would not trip the, the censors. But he worked on, on a sort of novelistic representation of his experience in the camp for, for years and tried to publish it in Spain. He wrote it in 1946, 47, 48. 
but he wasn't able to publish it in Spain until quite advanced into the Franco dictatorship when the censorship had, had lightened somewhat in 1963. Uh, so th- those two um, people, those two survivors are really the ones who, who put pen to paper and in, a, in very diverse ways, you know, a novel, uh, the novel doesn't even actually mention the name of Mauthausen, but given that the author was a survivor of Mauthausen, there's a, there's a, a great deal of uh, identifying information in Kale Reich um, and the serialized articles, as I said, which are on the other side of the gamut, um, given their their contention as uh, borderline Holocaust denial. And then there's not much, and there's not much for a couple decades until you get, and this is my characterization, correct me if I'm I'm misreading you, uh, a brief, intense but brief engagement with the Holocaust toward the end of the Franco regime. Why does it take so long, and, and what was this brief engagement like, and why was it so brief? Yeah, it's fascinating. There, there are these these few things that emerge in, in the '40s, uh, almost nothing in the '50s, a f- couple more things in the '60s. So, a period of silence that's directly the result of the Franco dictatorship. That that the survivors of Mauthausen, if they were writing, were were writing in France. They had almost no chance of publishing anything in Spain. Again, with the exception of. Amat Piniella's novel in the 60s. And I think there was a sense of frustration and there was a sense of risk that that trying to publish your experience of a Nazi concentration camp when you are persona non grata in Spain under the Franco dictatorship simply was too, it was too great a risk for, for, for life and for one's family. So in the 1970s, um, Franco is on his deathbed and there's a beginning of a movement to kind of shed some light on this period. People are, are interested. And this takes us back to the book I read in graduate school by Montserrat Roche, mm-hmm. who began interviewing survivors. She had to travel to France to, to in, for the most part, to interview them because she, she was still working under the Franco regime. And she, again, did not want to risk her own livelihood to cover this story. But she began telling stories about the Mauthausen survivors in the Spanish press and then published her, her compendium of, of oral testimony. And that really cracked things open for a while. Um, the late 70s, uh, a number of other survivors, Mariano Constante is probably the most well-known, published memoirs, appeared on Spanish television. There were um, interviews, uh, broadcasts um, across the nation in, in Spain, with survivors. And there was this resurgence in interest in the late seventies. And by the late seventies, Franco had died and there was a movement toward democracy. There was a feeling that, you know, more could be said in the country, more could be reckoned with uh, about Spain's past. People could, could sort of confront those issues. Uh, But then it stopped again in the early eighties. And my argument is that there was a, another attempted military coup in 1982 failed, but that put the fear of God back into uh, these Mauthausen survivors who had started to tell their stories, but then felt again that specter of Franco and, and thought thought better of, of trying to sort of broach the topic in Spain. And so come 1981, 1982, uh, the topic disappears again. And, and we see almost nothing uh, then until, until the late 90s when things, um, survivors, I think, begin to feel this sense that of urgency to tell their stories. Uh, they're by now elderly uh, men and women, and we have a new crop of uh, life stories and survivor memoirs that come out uh, at the end of the, of the 20th century. Yeah, I w- <clears throat> excuse me, I was really, um, as I was reading, I, you, you did a, a wonderful job kind of distilling that new memoir literature into a kind of pattern or template. Um, so, so what did all of those, what kind of template did all of those or many of those memoirs um, fit into or utilize as they're telling their stories? What do those life stories look like? First and foremost, they're, they're 
incredibly difficult to find because they were they were all published by regional publishing houses. Many of them were associated with, you know, uh, a regional government or a, a cultural institution. And when I say regional, I mean, you know, uh, small uh, regions in Spain, not nationwide things that would not have landed in anyone's local bookstore that were probably had print runs of maybe 500 and were, uh, you know, passed around to friends and relations and, and, uh, adopted into the archives of the of um, the Spain's National Library, which is where I found them. Hmm. Um, but they're all very personal memoirs that take one person's experience from. Uh, they almost all begin with the exodus that I described earlier, leaving Spain, the the time in the French internment camps, the deportation to the prisoner of war camps, and then really focus on those four or five years in Mauthausen and every memoir is slightly different because everyone's experience is slightly different, but they all hew to a pretty standard chronology. They all mention specific events that happened in Mauthausen that everyone would have been aware of had they not seen um, things like um, sort of spectacles of prisoner executions or, um, the the um, spiriting away of the photographs, which became really notorious among Spanish Mauthausen survivors, um, other specific events that had to do with how the war was progressing, the news that would filter to the prisoners in the camp. So all of these memoirs touch on some of the that historical timeline and some of those sort of more notorious um, events that happened in Mauthausen. But they also discuss you know, the, the, the own, uh, survivors feelings, their, their, you know, their, um, their particular suffering that they had in the camp. Everyone had a different role. Some, as I had mentioned before, were, were really were slave laborers their entire time. Others had privileged positions in different, um, physical places in the camp. And so we're able to see different, Things. Some di- some prisoners were able to witness not actual executions of Jews, but they did see uh, groups of Jewish prisoners coming into the camp and then would see that they were no longer in the camp the next day, for instance, and, and drew the, the logical conclusion that they had been that they had all been killed. Um, others, you know, describe smelling the smoke from the crematory smokestacks they they have these very um central is is a word to describe it ways of describing what they felt and saw and smelled in the camps that you really can't get uh in in my estimation from other historical works on Mauthausen. they're very personal and in in an even more personal sense they describe what happened to these survivors after they were liberated, liberated from the camp and the difficulties they had reintegrating into society finding work um having to stay out of spain away from their families because of the threats of of violence and returning and almost to to a piece each of these books also discuss how um how difficult it is to tell this story and how difficult it has been to manage Spain's, you know, um, almost complete silence on the topic of Spaniards who were deported to Nazi concentration camps. They're all the survivors who wrote in the nineties and the early two thousands feel this urgency that they can finally tell their story and that they need to tell their story because if they don't, they're, People, the Spanish public won't know it in any other way. Yeah. So, so, so a couple follow-ups on that one. One is, um, I'd never heard of these. I teach the Holocaust. Um, I'm, I'm not trained specifically in the Holocaust. I'm trained more broadly, but, but I teach the Holocaust. I, I'd never heard of any of these memoirs. Are, to what degree, if any, are the memoirs you read integrated into the broader consciousness of people? Um, across the, the globe, but especially in Europe and America, who who read and think about the Holocaust. Um, do, does anybody read these? I mean, the short answer is no. Yeah. They're, they're not integrated in any way, shape, or form. They're entirely written in Spanish and Catalan. Mm-hmm. I don't know of any that have been translated mm-hmm. into English. 
Um, there, they may be known, and some specific survivors may be known to their region in Spain. They were known to the survivor organizations in Spain. The Amical de Mauthausen is, is sort of the one of the major groups that organize education and, and different trips to Mauthausen to, to sort of bring these people and their experiences to light. But um, in terms of entering the larger conversation about the Holocaust, there, the, there's very little possibility for that. They're, they're, these memoirs in particular are really restricted to to Spain because of the language they're, they're published mm-hmm. in. And, and they're also, I mean, they're idiosyncratic in the sense that these are not professional writers yeah. who have written these, these memoirs. You know, you read um, other, other great works of Holocaust literature, Night, Elie Wiesel or, you know, Primo Levi, they don't read like that. They're not, they're not works of great literature. What they are, are very uh, immediate, you know, the sense of, of, of a survivor's memoirs and that sense of immediate um, personal stories. Um, But I think, I think because of these different issues, um, they, they really haven't found an audience outside of Spain and, and, to, to a great extent, have found very little audience inside of Spain as well. Yeah. So so let me flip the follow-up around then again and, and, and say, are these authors reading, as, as they are formulating their memoirs, as they're thinking about how to write a memoir about their experience, have they been reading the kind of, in the canon of, of Holocaust memoirs? Are they, do they have a template for themselves, do you think, in their own mind before they start? Or is this a parallel development that's not really connected with other kinds of Holocaust literature. I think there, I think there, there are examples of both of those, mm-hmm. um, both using a model of Holocaust liter- literature and, and not. Um, what's interesting about looking at the, the chronology that I'm looking at in the book is that obviously someone who writes their memoir in 1946 yeah. or 1947 is going to have a vastly different exposure than someone who's writing their memoir in 1996 or 1997. So the, the survivors who are writing in the nineties and the two thousands, if, if they haven't read widely, they have read, they have read Holocaust memoirs. They have read, uh, they've certainly read, um, historical material about Mauthausen. Mm-hmm. And you can tell because they, they, they do reference things that they wouldn't have been able to see. They reference um, sort of the overarching history of World War II. Um, and some of them make mention of Primo Levi or of Jorge Semprún, who's a, a Spanish national who is certainly Spain's most well-known Holocaust survivor um, who published most of his work in French. But... Um, there are then others who who have clearly not read um, sort of the canon or any piece of the canon of Holocaust literature, and for those people, these are these are these are their own. It's almost as though they're writing for their family. They're writing their memories so that so that they're recorded and so that people who are close to them will know what they went through. But they they don't have they don't. When you read them, you don't feel the sense that they're trying to trying to. Uh, right into the canon, for instance, they're, they're, they're simply trying to to have something to leave behind so that people know this history. Yeah, I want to get back to that question of, of, of personal and national memory in a second. But but you do point out uh, in, in your book that as this resurgence of interest emerges, one of the things that happens is a, is a broader variety of forms of representation and memory and you talk about fiction and, 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 and film and, um, and graphic novels. So maybe you could say just a little bit about the other, expand on that about the other forms of representation that survivors and people who are interested in their experience use. Sure. Absolutely. And it, it's, this is where the story of the Spaniards in Mauthausen does track um, mm-hmm. to a great extent with, with what's going on in, in Holocaust studies. Um, you know, as these survivors are lost, and and at this point, um, I can't give you an exact number, but there there are single digits of of yeah. Holocaust, uh, excuse me, Mauthausen survivors in Spain now. As the survivors themselves can no longer tell their stories, what's happened in Spain is that they're being told by by, if not family members, then interested others 
who are interested in telling the story of, of the Spaniards in Mauthausen. And that form has uh, sort of morphed or, or transformed into new ways to tell the story, not simply memoir, but novels, uh, fiction, uh, graphic novels, as you mentioned, uh, documentary films, and there's even on the horizon a fictional film about Mauthausen that's about to come out. Um, down to a Twitter account, a Twitter narrative that um, someone's put together based on his uncle's um, experience in Mauthausen. And these run the gamut um, the, of, of sort of quality and, and maybe fidelity to the, to the story of the Spaniards in Mauthausen. Some, like the, the graphic novel I'm thinking of, are somewhat sensationalized and, and end up dehistoricizing the story of the Spaniards in Mauthausen, end up using, using information that's really not accurate um, in the interest of, of a good story. But others, um, and I'm thinking of a, a play called The Blue Triangle that came out a, a couple years ago in Spain, do try to work with the historical material, try to work with the survivor memoirs to, to represent um, with more accuracy or, or at least with more understanding the um, experiences that, that the Spaniards in Mauthausen had. But it's, it's amazing what's happened in the last decade. Really, there's been uh, from that silence that we saw in the early 90s to this explosion of, you know, blockbuster novels. There are a couple of, of novels that have, that have gone through multiple editions based on um, the Spaniards in Mauthausen. And then again, through interesting new media explorations like a, like a Twitter account. So back to that question about identity and memory, uh, which maybe I'll get into by pointing out that you, you cite in the book, I think it's Paul Preston. I think that's his name. Um, as one of people, one of a number of people who use the term Holocaust um, to refer to events that are distinctive to Spain. So, so how do Spanish or, or writers in the Spanish Peninsula think about this idea of the Holocaust and and how is that or a Holocaust or of Holocausts and how has the writing you studied shaped that? So this is a this is a tricky question because in Spain um, you have to you have to separate scholars from the general public. Mm-hmm. The general public in Spain and and. A, um, I'm including some usage, like you, you mentioned, Paul Preston has a book called The Spanish Holocaust, which doesn't have anything to do with the Holocaust. It has to do with the Spanish Civil War. So in Spain, there's a tendency to, to use that term Holocaust very widely um, and in a, in a way that could be um, quite uh, polemical to people who study the Holocaust as the extermination of European Jewry. Um, using the Holocaust as a term to to, to signify, um, you know, the massacres that happened in the Spanish Civil War or the incarceration of Francoist detractors uh, in the early years of the dictatorship. And then on the other other hand, there are those who understand the Holocaust to mean uh, anyone who was victimized by the Nazis in Nazi concentration camps and during World War II which outside of Spain is really not, uh, we, we, we understand the Holocaust to be the extermination of Jews. Scholars in Spain are a, a bit more attuned to the, what the conversation is outside of the peninsula and are, are certainly careful to distinguish Nazi victims who are not Jewish from Jewish victims of the Nazis. But it's difficult in, in, a, in the public conversation, and which we see in the newspapers and on television, there is a sense that um, these Spanish Mauthausen survivors are, quote, victims of the Holocaust. Mm-hmm. And outside of Spain, uh, that reading is, is simply not, uh, you know, not, not really acceptable in, mm-hmm. in Holocaust studies. They are victims of the Nazis, but they're non-Jewish victims. They were not subject to extermination in the gas chambers. Um, so, you know, this is part of kind of the, the sticky part of trying to tell this story is because, um, certainly there's, there's an absolute need to understand the legacy of Spaniards who were victimized by the Nazis of the Spanish involvement in World War II. But there's also a need to understand that it was different than the Jewish experience of the Holocaust, 
Um, and that's, that's a work in progress in, in Spain. Um, and some of the newer representations that move beyond survivor mem- memoirs do at times cross those lines into uh, kind of the non, non-specific usage of the word Holocaust in a way that can be, that can be problematic. So that seems like an appropriate place to end. We've taken a lot of your time. Um, but I always ask guests the same two questions at the end. And the first is, it's as we're taping this, uh, while your semester hasn't quite started, mine has, but I'm looking forward to an almost immediate holiday break with Labor Day weekend. And rather than prepare lectures or grade, I would rather really rather read something interesting. Um, so maybe you could suggest to listeners a book or two, or maybe it's a movie, something something that was meaningful for you as you were writing this book that we should go off and read or watch. Sure. I, that's a, that's a, an interesting question. I have, I have two recommendations mm-hmm. that I'll give that, that um, I think would be both enjoyable and really enlightening. And they're kind of the two bookends of mm-hmm. this, of this project. So the first one is the, is the novel I mentioned, Kale Reich by Joaquim Amat Piniella, which was, written in the 40s, published in the 60s, but has been recently um, and quite nicely translated oh. into English. So it would be very accessible oh. for your for your listeners. Um, it was published in a, a, an English edition in 2014. And again, a, a really sensitive portrayal of the Spanish experience that kind of opens up into all different strata in the Mauthausen concentration camp. Germans, uh, Spaniards, other political prisoners, told through uh, the voice of a narrator who really is a foil for the author himself, who, as I said, was a was a Mauthausen survivor from Catalonia. Um, that, on the one hand, I think Kale Reich is um, is a novel that 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 really is worth um, worth teaching, worth reading, worth thinking about. It's it it should be canonical mm. outside of Spain, but it's not yet. <laughs> And the, the second recommendation I would have is is the Twitter account, actually, that I mentioned. Um, I think in terms of understanding kind of the directions, the new directions that um, Spanish representations of the Nazi camps are taking and, and even of the Holocaust in general, it's worth looking at this particular Twitter account. So it's called Deportado4443. And it uh, is written in Spanish, but... Twitter has a nice algorithm that, that translates uh-huh. and it does a pretty, pretty accurate job of translating these tweets. Um, and just in short, it's a, it's a Twitter account that essentially uh, to commemorate the 70th anniversary of the liberation of Mauthausen distilled five years in a pri- prisoner's life in the camp into three months worth of tweets. Huh. So three months worth of short entries, almost diary like entries that are apocryphal. No one ever actually wrote these. They're based on the the, uh, the Twitter author's uncle's experience in Mauthausen. And the author himself, Carlos Hernandez de Miguel, is a, is a Spanish journalist. Um, but they use the apparatus of Twitter. So they use links to photos and short films, often provided by the U.S. Uh, Holocaust Memorial Museum, um, they use hashtags, uses replies, and this Twitter account, Deportado4443, has really become sort of a conversation about the Spanish legacy of, of the Holocaust and Mauthausen, how it's remembered, how it should be remembered, and uh, almost to, to the point of being an advocate for huh. um, keeping the Spanish presence in Mauthausen alive in, in our memories. So I think your listeners would also enjoy, and certainly in terms of speed on a holiday weekend, it's not a hard read to look through the Twitter account. Well, I have to say, you've just gotten me in trouble with my family because I'm now going to be spending Monday afternoon looking at Twitter rather than playing softball with my daughter, but I will blame you and all will be well. So, (laughs) but thank you so much for your time. This is a fascinating discussion. It's a, it's a wonderful book. We we're only able to touch the highlights and I encourage people to go out and read it. Um, What are you working on next? 
Well, as we speak, I'm putting the finishing touches on a manuscript, uh, an edited volume with my colleague, uh, Gina Herman at the University of Oregon. We're working on a book entitled Spain, World War II and the Holocaust, History and Representation. It has 30 30 odd uh, scholarly essays about the full gamut of Spain's relationship to World War II and the Holocaust, as the title indicates, including historians, sociologists, literary scholars, cultural scholars. It's going to be a fascinating book, and we're really excited. Uh, It'll be coming out with the University of Toronto uh, soon, hopefully. Well, wonderful. Well, congratulations, and I hope that um, when it does come out, you'll be uh, willing to come back on the show and talk about it um, with the audience again. So until that happens, thank you so much, and um, have a great beginning to your semester. Thanks so much, Kelly. It was a pleasure. All right. Bye-bye. You've been listening to an interview with Sarah Brennis about her book, Spaniards in Mauthausen, Representations of a Nazi Concentration Camp. If you enjoyed this interview, you can listen to previous podcasts through iTunes or Stitcher or other podcast providers, or from the webpage from New Books and Genocide Studies, part of the New Books Network of podcasts. I hope you'll join me next time when I'll talk with Roz Segal about his new book, Genocide in the Carpathians, War, Social Breakdown, and Mass Violence, 1914-1945. Until then, thanks for the download and have a great month.